Now, every day we make a fashion statement, whether we like it or not. Now, is fashion serious or silly, or perhaps even seriously silly? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches, and boozy brunches, we bring you shaken and stirred, or rather, we are shaken and stirred. Cheers. This is shaken and stirred. I'm Nigel Barker, and I am here with my co-host. But I like to call him my valet, my butler, fresh off the boat, Tom Astor. Oh, thank you. I'm not. Sure. I'm not going to take that as a compliment. Well, every time you say it, I'm not. I'm just not convinced. Fresh. What did you say? Fresh off the boat. Oh, the, the, the boat. <laughs> the that's boat. A, that's a long trip. Fresh <laughs> off that boat. Well, have you, have you seen him? I mean, it took a long trip. I mean, he don't. You know, he didn't used to look like this. When I last saw him, he looked fantastic. But I really, you, you just heard the voice of my guest. She's, you know, can't wait, chomping at the bit. I have fashion icon. You all know who she is. She, <laughs> I have Fern Malice with me. Fern, what a pleasure to have you on Shaken and Stirred. A pleasure is all mine. I mean, the, the list of things that you have done in your career are unbelievable. I have a sort of, I, I, I literally went through multiple biographies when it was, when I came to sort of what you've done, you know, the places you've been, the things that you've created, whether it's sort of New York Fashion Week as we know it today, uh, whether it's, you know, working at the CFDA, Fashion Targets Breast Cancer, raising hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, creating your own incredible series uh, at the 92nd Street Y called Fashion Icons itself. I mean, you go on and on and on. I mean, and everyone knows you. I mean, you are really, I say fashion icon, but you are a fashion icon because you are a fashion enabler. What do you think of that? That almost sounds dangerous. What I, enabler, you know, I have to think about that because enabler uh, to me means helping somebody drink or do something bad. Well, this is drinking's not bad, not, but but talking ena- about drinking, wait a second, talking about drinking, yes, we have what do we have right here, Tom? What are we drinking? Aperol Spritz, 19, first created in 1919, uh, currently owned by Campari family. It's a sort of Campari. Um, drink, but less strong, and a summer favorite. A lot of most people in Italy and France, where I spent, have spent quite a lot of summers, and apparently in in it's big in America as well. Very big. Yeah. And you picked this drink immediately, Fern. When I said to you, you know, you're coming on shaking us dead. What do you want to drink? It was about eleven o'clock in the morning, by the way, when I asked Fern mm-hmm. this question, and I got an instant answer back that it was Aperol Spritz or a margarita. Why the difference? And, and what, what what are the two sides of you? Well, it was depending on the time we were going to be doing this because the margar- maybe if it was later in the day, I'd stay with the margarita. But the Aperol Spritz is light, and I, it's a pretty drink, and I like drinks to look nice, and it's a pretty color, and it's it's an easy drink. I mean, I didn't want to get sloshed talking to you with like a heavy duty drink. I mean, I, I you wouldn't I be the have, first. I, well, I do have some dignity here, you know. Well, I want to maintain. Well, absolutely, and I would expect no less from you, Fern. I was actually referring to Tom, okay. who, if, in case you'd noticed, is actually resembles an Aperol Spritz. Yeah, well, I he was very, very springy and light and colorful, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's you know, you, you. and fun and fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. summary. <laughs> But but I but I have to tell you before before we go further. Well, I told my sister yesterday that I was coming today to be on your podcast, and and I said Nigel Barker's, and she said, "Oh, really? I know who he is. My sister lives under a rock, and she's an architect in Boston. And she, I tell her all these famous people I know or meet, and she goes, "Who's that? What do they do?" She was so giddy and excited that she knew who you were. 
Well, you know what? My audience actually all live under rocks. That is, in fact, my demographic. I specifically broadcast underground. Is it because they're so, you know, well, they're not because they're so embarrassed? No, but I, but, but, the, but, you know, joking aside, you are absolutely right. You have interviewed a who's who of the fashion industry. And, you know, and we'll get to talking about television and its impact and social media and its impact and how the world has changed. But to go back to why I called you a fashion enabler, it wasn't to be rude, rather, or to say that you are, you know, enabling someone to drink. Because obviously that's how it's usually used. But I thought about it. I was thinking, you know, about you, your biography, what you've done, all the things that you've done. And I, I came up with enabler because what you've sort of created, you're not a designer. You're not a fashion editor in a magazine. You're not a photographer. You're not, but you, have, you bring all these people together. And by doing what you did for Fashion Week, you enabled so many people in the fashion industry to celebrate what they do, to, come, to, to basically show the world you know, their designs, their collections. You created the circus that, are, that it really is what we know Fashion Week to be now, the world over. So that's why I called you the fashion no, I, I, No, I appreciate that. And I do take it in the best possible way that you meant that and facilitator facilitator change yeah. it to facilitators okay i like enabler it's tougher you know it has a sexier connotation to it all right the enabler so let's go with it let's go with it own it own it Fern. i'm gonna own the enabler i'm gonna add that to my uh my list of description you know the, as you said i'm not an editor i'm not a designer i'm not a manufacturer i'm not any of that which is why they can never figure out what seats to put me in in places like, you don't go with the editors, you don't go with the retailers. We wind up sitting next to you lots of times at fashion shows. So Fern is basically a, a fixture at the front row of fashion shows. And, you know, not everyone out there who's going to be listening to Shaken Us There knows the rules of fashion shows. This isn't a fashion-only show. So our audience aren't always clued in to how these things work. But front row at fashion shows are always the key seats. And, and it's not just the front row. It depends where on the front row, too. Um, you know, when we talk about this, I you posted something on your social media just about a couple oh, of weeks ago. There we ago. go. Yeah. Okay. And it was the, one of the funniest <laughs> posts I think I've ever seen. You know, it pretty much went viral within the within the fashion community. Oh God, did it ever. And it was a photograph of a, you, when you when you go to a fashion show, they give you a ticket and it tells you where you where you're seated, right? And it's normally AA one or BB one, and whatever it is, it says the number one which means you're in the first row, and that's where you're seated. Uh, and Fern, of course, being a fashion icon, that, that, you know, she doesn't even need to ask. She probably just walks to the front, they just lead her straight in, put her in her seat, and that's it. It's done, people. But what happened, Fern? Well, you know, it got blown up out of proportion, I must say, but I did enjoy the, the viralness of this. I walked into Chelsea um, Piers, to Pier 59, and the young man at the front desk saw me coming, so he did know who I was, uh, as opposed to other everybody writing. Are we able to say what show it was? Well, I might as well now. It's, it was NIHL, Nile. I don't even right. know who that is. I wasn't planning to go to that show. I was on my way to Todd Snyder's fashion show. Right. And so when I walked in, the kid at the front desk saw me and punched out from the machine a little barcode, little ticket that has your reservations in it. And he handed it to me, and it said, Standing. <laughs> and I said, I looked at it, and I had the barcode to, to scan. And I looked at Elliot, my assistant, and we just started to laugh. So we got in the elevator and went upstairs. Sacrilege, people. Because I wasn't even planning to go to that show. So I walked up, and I went to see about Todd Snyder's show, which was where I was headed. And it was far from ready to start. So this Neil show was in the other venue in the space. 
And it, they, the security guards, who were all my pals, said, oh, they're going to do a second presentation. The first one was over. They're doing another one. So we walked in there, and I realized that there were two, be- two rows of benches. Uh, the first row had some reserved seat, um, little cards on the front row. And Which is where you'd probably normally be seated. Normally. And I, so I just walked in, I stood in the back, I stood on the, behind the second row for a minute, sat on the second row. And then when it didn't fill up, moved to the front row and watched the presentation, which was interesting. Um, so you basically stole a seat? From nobody because it wasn't full up. I know I got that, but that's okay. I we're going to we're, we're come back to the seat ceiling moment because I love this. The fashion shows are famous for their seat stealers. Oh, yeah. Oh, seats. People have sat in my seat many times, and I've walked over and I said, That's my seat. And they said, Who were. No, I don't think so. And I said, Yes, I think so. Like, please, you know, I'll show you my ticket. But it, the whole thing was, was crazy because, I mean, we posted that on the way up in the elevator because it was just so funny that it said standing. And I wrote, I don't think so. Which, by the way, was the post. And, and for all of you out there, you're thinking, wait a second, what's the big deal? Surely standing, seating, you're in a fashion show, you love it. But guys, listen, you've got to understand that, you know, when you have someone like Fern Malice, it's like having an Anna Wintour. It's like having someone who, who runs Fashion Week, who, who is the reason why Fashion Week is even happening in New York in the way it is. The least you do is give them a seat at the front row. The problem is, is that your audience doesn't live under a rock. And had you had my audience, they would have seen me coming and being like, oh, my God, there's the guy from America's Next Top Model. Right. And, and, you know, and I, I get in and actually then I go and I see the designer and they're like, sorry, who are you? I know it, it's crazy because I mean, but the, the viralness, the comments on Instagram went bonkers with people saying off with their heads. These millennials, don't they know who they're talking to? Uh, this is crazy. How could this happen? You deserve a throne at every show. A one one forever. I mean, the, the truth is, there was so much love thrown at me on the internet that I I got a great kick out of it. But I didn't mean to damage this show or this designer or their PR team. Oh, trust because me. it wasn't their mistake. You made their day. They are now being talked about the world over, and everyone thinks it's actually quite. Everyone gets it. I just think it was it was one of those innocent probably mistakes. There, they have some young kid on the show. I mean, but by the way, when someone does recognize me these days, it used to be like, "Hi, you the guy from America's Next Top Model?" Now, what I get is. <gasps> My mother loves you. Oh, don't you love that? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, yeah, thanks. Jeez, you know, it, it happens. You know, so it happens. And before you know it, it's, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be under the rock too. So I, you know, no, you have to be multi generational. You gotta, gotta please all the, all the whole so family. Let's get there. And I, before we get to what's happening in Fashion Week right now, t- take us back a little bit and <clears throat> just talk about when you first, you know, were working in Fashion Week. What made you decide to sort of create seventh on sixth in the first place well i was hired i was selected let's say after a very long search to be director of the cfda the council of fashion designers of america absolutely which is a non-for-profit trade association of designers and the mission had always been to further the the prestige and reputation of american designers and promote american fashion i was I had I had a career early in my life in fashion and then shifted to architecture interior design and um, doing marketing, PR, advertising, all sorts of things. I came back into the fashion when I heard about the CFDA looking for, for uh, a new executive director. This was after they had done a huge benefit called 7th on Sale. Mm-hmm. It was an AIDS benefit in 19, um, 1990. 
and it was it was which is an Ibis model by the way it was it was huge and it was a long overdue AIDS benefit nevertheless the CFDA was kind of it was rudderless, headless after that. The president was Carolyn Rome, and she resigned. The executive director, who was a friend of Perry Ellis at the time, he he didn't have his contract renewed. And it was a very sleeper organization. If you really weren't an insider, insider, you didn't know what CFDA was. And uh, they had done awards galas and, and not a whole lot of right. other stuff. So I, being of the fashion world... Uh, would read Women's Wear Daily every day. I knew they were searching for a new director. I had just left a job as the uh, senior vice president of the International Design Center in New York, a big design center in Long Island City, where I wish I had bought property at the time. <laughs> Don't we all? But whatever. Um, I and, first moved to the meatpacking district. Can yeah, you imagine what exactly, I wish I'd done? Exactly. And I, I was looking at that, and I said, maybe I should go up for that job. And people said to me, oh, my God, you'd be perfect for that. Because I was very involved in AIDS fundraising at the time. I was uh, a founding board member of DIFA, the Design Industries Foundation Fighting AIDS. I designed a trash can for them. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a great organization. Amazing. You've and, done incredible philanthropic well, yeah, work, I, by the way. Well, I love doing that stuff with causes that matter to you. And in any case, I, I asked around and people said, I said, how do I go up for that job? You know, what do I do? And a friend of mine said, oh, call Donna Karen. And I went, yeah, call Donna Karen. Like, As one does. Like Donna's going to take my call. And then they told me, somebody else got back to me and said, send a resume to Stan Herman and a designer named Monica Tilly. They were the search committee. So I did that. Love Stan, by the way. Uh, everybody loves Stan. And I love Stan. He's one of my best friend today. Uh, so on Friday, I think I sent a resume. On Monday, they called and said, how soon can you come here? So I went in for a meeting probably the next day. And... It was the tail end of a search that they had been on. They had done hundreds of interviews, hundreds of resumes, probably interviewed about 40, 50 people. And they had five finalists that were coming in two days later. And I literally, it's all about timing and how those things happen Absolutely. in your life. So they, right place, right time. They said, can you come back in two days for the final interviews? And I said, sure. So I came back two days later. It will, and I wish I remembered who the other people were sitting in that reception room. And I really don't. It's killing me today that I can't remember who they were. And went in and the interview was with Stan. And it was with Bill Blass and Calvin Klein and Carolyn Rome. Just a few average designers and people. <clears throat> you know, just a you know, casual, casual meeting. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, the trauma for me was what do I wear to all these interviews and meetings? Uh, in any case, Bill Blass looked like my my father looked like Bill Blass a little bit, so I I was comfortable with him. I knew Calvin from Fire Island and the beach and parties. Through these the guys years. are your peers. I mean, this is another thing. Right now, we hear these names, and of course, they are the fashion icons. These are the people you're interviewing yeah. in your series right now. But was, you are they're your contemporaries. Yes. Well, it was it was a heady conversation with them, and they said to me, you know, you haven't been in fashion in ten years, like you've been in other industries. Why why should we hire you? And I said, I never stop wearing clothes. And they thought that was a good answer. I said, I never stop shopping. I never stop looking at magazines. You know, the fashion for me was in my blood and my DNA. My family was in fashion. My father was in the industry, all my uncles. I grew up, you know, in the garment center. Mm -hmm. 
So I mean, people think these things, people are overnight successes. But like you said, you've got to live it, breathe it, be it. Yeah. And I said, look, you know, if you, you either love this industry and you know it or you don't. And any, in any case, the interview went well. And I was then asked to come. They told me that they were going to select me after they did their final interviews with everybody. They took me to the office to see it. And it was a, I mean, a, a tiny back office in 1412 Broadway behind the freight elevators. And I went, this is the headquarters for the American fashion industry? I don't think so. Uh, so I knew. You, my, had, you had plans already. I knew immediately the first thing I was going to do is have to change that. Uh, but in any case, I was hired. It was on my birthday, March 26th. I went to the board meeting to be ratified. And it was a big meeting at um, Carolyn Rome's showroom. And every name you could imagine who was on the board then, including Eleanor Lampert and others, were at this table. Ralph, Calvin, Donna, Oscar, Bill, um, uh, Joseph Abood, Marion Restivo, By the Pat way, Patricia people talk about Underwood. Me, they just say Nigel. You know, that's that's how people refer to me too. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm listening. Of course, all I know who you're talking name, about. I, but, I guess but, I should be putting last names. No, not people. at all. I we we no, know who they all are. Considering I wouldn't call myself particularly well well educated in the world of fashion, but I know you exactly. Know I, mean. I know exactly who you oh, mean. Yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. No, it's just well educated. Period. But anyway, and we had a big tête-à-tête back and forth. There was a little challenge for me there, but at the end of the meeting, they set me aside, put and go back in the in the office behind. And they all deliberated, and I came back out. And so you say by tete, 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 you mean you, you went sort of head-to-head head with them on certain issues, yes. but you didn't agree, and you were going to put yes. your foot down. I did, with Os- with Oscar, who challenged my ability to give a 1,000% of my time to CFDA because uh, they need to raise money and do things as opposed to that I was on the DIFA board and was raising a lot of money for that organization. And I said, don't ask me to not raise money for my friends who are dying. I will do whatever it takes to do that, and it will not take away one ounce of the energy I will put into the CFDA. I will do both. Don't don't ask me to not do no. that. And then Absolutely there was, not. and that went on for a minute. And then, oddly enough, Mary McFadden said to me something about the partnership for the homeless. I started a, char- a charitable group called Furnish a Future, which was a, became a subdivision of the Partnership for the Homeless in New York at a time when. That was really a big issue. It still is, unfortunately. And Furnish a Future became a factory in Brooklyn that an old philanthropist who's passed away many years ago, Brooke Astor, um, quite the woman. My relative. That's that's Tom's, what's your great aunt? Yeah, cousin. The the last American cousin we had. Fantastic. Well, she was quite a lady. She funded this this. That's why he makes such a good butler. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) because of the the lineage of Brooke Astor, and you know he makes a a lot bloody good bloody Mary too. Yeah, that would have been my third drink choice, a bloody Mary. To me, Oscar de la Renta, he was very instrumental in in looking after it at the end when things weren't going. Oscar's wife. Yeah, was it Oscar? Very much. Yes, Annette de la Renta. Yeah, so let's go. Well, in any case, I started that organization, which then was getting furniture and. Um, if you know, if you try to get rid of things in New York, it's not easy. You want to get rid of a dresser or tables and chairs. What day of the week can you put it out on the street? I How furnished get... my first apartment in New York by things I bought from flea markets, by exactly. the way. Exactly. Or yeah. you find it on the, on the street. My niece finds all these cabinets and shelves she finds on the street. But this all, we had trucks that would come. They had 
people wearing graphics of Furniture Future we had designed, and they would go to Brooklyn, and when when homeless people were put in the system and they found housing for them, they could come to this factory and pick out tables, chairs, you know, tchotchkes, dishes, pots and pans, everything, uh, so that they could have a home and, you know, and have a place to to live and, and create a family and a healthy environment. Oddly enough, Mary McFadden challenged me about that, and I said, it's funny that you asked me about that because I only went to this meeting that a friend told me about that the Partnership for the Homeless was having, and it was in your showroom. And I went because I wanted to see your showroom. And sitting in your showroom, when they talked about it, I said, I've got an idea. Why don't we call this Furniture Future? I can get, because I was in the furniture and the right. design industry with the, the, the design center. I said, we could reach out to all those people to get product to donate. And I became like chair of that that unit. So it was it was very funny how things come together. Anyway, that's a long story to say I was hired. The CFDA board brought me back in, had a cake, and sang happy birthday to me. It was quite a moment in my life. And then I had a couple of weeks off before I was going to start the job. I can't even imagine the CFDA board singing happy birthday for some odd reason. That must have been quite an impressive moment. It was, uh, you know, before cell phones. I would have been recording the whole thing, of course. Um, but in any case, I didn't start for two weeks, but it was then Fashion Week or Market Week, which it was called. And if there were 50 fashion shows, there were 50 different locations. I remember and it well. Nobody talked to each other. Nobody cared if you were in the plaza in the morning and then you had to take everything down for a bar mitzvah that night and build it up the next day. And if somebody was down in Chinatown or... Whatever. There was no rhyme or reason to wear fashion shows were literally all over the place. Wherever a designer. <laughs> now, there was something quite nice to that because there were fashion shows in certain locations like the New York Public Library and, and you know, various sort of cool places in the East Village. And designers would sort of think, well, what location fits my collection and all of that? But it was also a pain in the butt totally. for all of the people, the editors and anyone who was the buyers, anyone who was really the press to get to it. And quite frankly, you'd be late. After and time. no designer could care about where you were coming from or where you had to get to next or what your time was. It was completely irresponsible in many ways. I love it. See, Fern's getting mad now. now this I'm is get, the, now getting, getting yeah, tough. Getting this is the reason why this happened. People. And so Michael Kors had a show. And it was in an empty loft space in a building that I think he had his showroom in and offices in Chelsea. And it was a raw concrete space, which designers like. And you know if you you know when you're in a show and the bass music goes on, if something's not nailed down, it moves or it shakes. Well, the ceiling shook. And to the point that plaster was coming down on the runway, right over the runway, chunks of plaster onto the shoulders of Naomi, Cindy, Linda, all the one-name supermodels of the day. They get paid the big bucks. They kept walking. But the plaster landed in Susie Menkes's lap, who was the editor of the International Herald Tribune, and Carrie Donovan, who was the New York Times fashion critic. Chunks of plaster. It's a fashion emergency. You're not kidding. <laughs> I mean, I heard years later that there was a Chanel lipstick, a certain red that Carrie had in her bag that got smashed, and they didn't make it anymore. That was Now, now we're talking now trauma. Now we're talking trauma. Now, now this is a disaster, trauma. people. Um, but the next day, all the editors the editors wrote, we live for fashion. We don't want to die for it. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I think my job description just changed. And it was, now let's find safe, sound places for the American designers to do their fashion shows. And I went on a mission looking at every empty parking lot, every empty building in New York. It was just at the, at the time that there was a real estate crash. 
So there was a lot of buildings that had started and stopped. Um, money stopped pouring in. And look to find a place to organize the shows. The home fashion, basically give and a home to fashion week. And 7th on 6th got named after the AIDS benefit, which was 7th on sale. 7th Avenue being the generic name that connotes the fashion industry. Fashion Avenue. Just the way Broadway means Broadway, Madison Avenue meant advertising, Wall Street means the financial industry. 7th Avenue, you would say, and that's fashion, which isn't so much the case anymore. No, 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 absolutely not. But, I mean, the world has changed. And talking about changing worlds, that's an amazing story you just shared with us. But, I, you know, Fashion Week is obviously, you changed it then, and you brought it all under one roof. But we have seen, certainly in my past 10 years, my, you know, sort of working, uh, you know, not as a model, because I, I actually used to walk the runways, and I remember when they all came under one roof. And from the model's perspective, it was fantastic as well, because it used to be hellish, and you'd be shouted at when you were running in late from some other place uptown. And, and all over the world, by the way, this was the case. Shows were done, you know, if you went to Paris, they were, you know, all over all the different, you know, areas of Paris. And you'd have to, you know, finally they were brought under one roof. So you actually took this idea and you were able to able replicate to it. sell it and get sponsorship dollars, which was the most interesting part of it. Because everybody thinks the fashion industry is just rich as Croesus and they could pay for anything. We know that designers don't spend a lot of money on their shows. So it was... Um, or they don't want to spend a lot of money, I should say, on their shows. And so we had to figure out how to do this. For a couple of seasons, we did something in what was then known as the Maclo Hotel, which is now the Millennial, Millennium, Millennial Hotel on 44th Street. Right. And it was, it was the first time to prove that six people could show in the same place. And not, you know, lose their identity. And were they exactly, were they jealous of one another? Were they competitive with one another? They're always competitive with one another. But to the point of, you know, somebody trying to build this set and that set, you know, I would always say, hey, stupid, it's about the clothes. Let's make it easy for people to come and go and see it. That's the, it's a business. And the, the hotel on 44th Street worked fine, but it wasn't big enough. It didn't have the scale we needed. So we were negotiating with Bryant Park, which, it's like the backyard to the garment center. It's right there. And talk about a central location. That was amazing. I mean, you're behind the library. You're a few blocks from Grand Central, from Times Square. I mean, there's subway, there's the transportation. Tents. The tents. And the tents for 20 years, if you said, I'm in the tents, you knew that that meant you have a show or you've succeeded or you've, you know, a young designer liked showing the tents. It meant I've made it. How did you convince the designers initially to come and show in the tents? And what was that? That must have been that must have been the hard part, really. It was sort of convincing people because, as you just said, you know there are a lot of egos and the people are competitive. And you know, what, what, was that a difficult process, or did they all actually decide breath of relief? It was it was not easy, but it was not that difficult. Um, I think they understood that. Uh, what happened in the process of trying to get this event organized in the summer of 1992, there was the Democratic Convention in New York. And that was the convention that nominated Bill Clinton to be the nominee for the party. So for a year leading up to that, I was on a committee with people from the art world, people from the uh, the museums, from all the theaters, from the financial institutions, from the art galleries, from the healthcare, you name it, all the industries in New York, trying to come up with what could we do to entertain and show off the best of New York to all these delegates and press coming to New York in the summer of 92. We were the fashion industry. We said, we'll put on a fashion show. 
and we got money raised from some sponsors, and we did it in Central Park, which was the only time they let us put up a tent in the Sheep Meadow, but that's because this was such a big event for New York City. And we got every designer to participate, you know, from the Oscar, Ralph, Donna, Calvin, to, you know, Nicole Miller and Isaac and Todd and um, Diane von Furstenberg, you name it, everybody. They were all there. And they all sent two looks. And then at the end, and this tent was a beautiful big white tent, clear sight lines from everywhere. It sat about a thousand people. And at the end, each designer walked down the runway with their model. And then at the end, we're all standing on the lawn, and they looked at me and they said, is this the kind of tent you're talking about? Because we'd been in the discussions to try and create this kind of thing. And I said, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And all of them, for the first time, I think, really saw the vision of a big tent and all these people with good sight lines. And it was just so easy and so right. So that was in the summer. That September, CFDA sent me to Paris and Milan to do some R&D and meet with people and see what they were doing. I came back with lots of pictures and lots of ammunition and sat down one-on-one with all the key players. And then we had a series of meetings, lots of meetings, with the production people and the the PR teams. The production people were the most nervous. They thought they're going to lose money because we're going to produce this. They're not going to get to set up these big productions all over town. Are they coming up with obstacles for why it wouldn't work? Everybody came up with an obstacle why it wouldn't work. PR people were aghast, a lot of them. But for the most part, people understood that if we do this together, we can really make a difference in New York. And I, one meeting specifically was at the 500 Club, which is a... I've given speeches there myself. And um, lots of designers there and lots of industry-related folks. And some young designer way in the back raised his hand and said, well, you know, I don't know if we should do this. I mean, we need our own identity and our own space. And, you know, is Calvin going to show there? And Calvin Klein was sitting right in the front row. I looked at Calvin and I said, do you want to answer that? And he came up to the podium and he said, I absolutely am going to show there. I think this is important for all of us to do this together for America to make a difference. And that kind of shut the designer up in the back. And That's a very American answer, by the way. I love that. It's just, you know, a better European designer wouldn't have said that. I mean, it was so, it was so appropriate. And I thank God Calvin was at that meeting. And those first seasons, we had Calvin, Ralph, Donna, they were all in the tents. They all knew that we had to do that together. And it was, I mean, I'll never forget the first sound check when we were building those tents in Bryant Park. It was like chills up your spine that this was really happening. And it was spectacular. It was nothing like the tents evolved into. There was a long tent um, before the restaurant was built in Bryant Park, and that was called Gertrude. The one in the front was called Josephine. And then we also used the Celeste Bardos Forum in the library, and we called that Celeste. I called them our three muses. And Gertrude was the one in the back because there was a statue of Gertrude Stein that sits in, in Bryant Park. She prominently fit in backstage, and every show designers would throw hats and scarves and necklaces Hilarious. around her. You know, and it was remarkable. And, and it evolved over time. The configuration of the tents changed. We moved out one season and then came back. And I, it was 
you know, it was an event. It was everybody a time knew in it was happening. Going up Sixth Avenue, the crowds on the street, watching everybody go up. The tent graphics in the front every season were a special joy of mine. Trying to create a message with that. One of the things I hear, not just in what you're saying, but in your voice, in your tone of your voice, is it's it's very emotional, right, for you. And and, and I think that you know the way you describe it, it's like having a baby. It's having a child. It's it's a sort of passion. It's a love. And I, I think sometimes the people in, just in the public itself, and I come, have come across this having worked in the fashion industry, certainly on from a, very much a, a public-facing aspect, working on reality television and various radio shows and TV shows. One of the questions I get asked is, why do people in fashion take themselves so seriously? And you know, there's, I'm looking at you. I can see the passion. I can, you know, the intensity in your voice. And you know, what, and give me from your opinion. I mean, I have my own opinion on this, but why is why do fashion people find themselves so important half the time or, or are they important I guess perhaps that's the question you know i'm not sure that all of them really are i think there's a persona that people see that's not really real in all of them i mean these people these designers put themselves out there i i so so much to do the work they do they don't do two collections a year they do 16 sometimes they're doing pre-fall, pre-spring, fall-spring resort, you know, a bridal collection. They're doing six licensed products that they design. They produce a show. They produce a collection. Then they have to put a show on. They have to then appeal to the media. They're constantly judged by everybody. Everybody in the world has an opinion on what they're doing. Then they have to get the buyers to buy it. Then they have to do ad campaigns and whatever it takes to get consumers to buy their product. And while you're in the store buying it, they're on the next collection. And I mean, these people just don't stop. And I think that they are some of the most insecure people in the world. And it comes across as being cocky or arrogant. And they're really not. I mean, I, th- I think That's they have to keep a facade up of strength and power of what they're doing to justify what they're doing, explain what they're doing, um, to sell what they're doing, compete with everybody in the world. You know, and and to keep their design integrity intact. I mean, I just respect how much work these people put in to do what they do. And I don't think, and that was very much my mission when I was at CFDA. Was was is like kind of what you said. People think of designers. Eh, the hemlines go up, they go down. They're just frivolous. These are, this frivolous, is not this is not fashion. frivolous. This is real business. This is real economy. These are people that are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into um, the into the economy. Well, it's a trillion dollars. Millions tr- and billions into taxes, into New York, into everywhere else. This is a defining industry. It's not frivolous. It's the one thing everybody does: wear clothing. You don't have to go to the movies. You don't have to read a book. I couldn't you agree have to more. get dressed every day. Every day we wake up, we make a fashion statement, whether no. we like it or not. Whether you think you're doing it or not, subconsciously you're doing it. People say. Oh, when I used to tell people I'm in the fashion industry, you'd get some people go, oh, I know nothing about fashion. Oh, I don't. I said, yes, you do. You're wearing clothing. Oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't think about it. My wife picks out my clothes or this. I said, you put on something every day, whether you want to be noticed or you don't want to be noticed or you don't want people to think you look like you paid attention. There are statistics out there that show that if you wear a navy blue suit um, when you're up against a jury, they're more likely to find you innocent than if you're then guilty. 
So, and if you wear a black suit, they're more likely to think you're guilty. So there, there's the psychological, crazy. there's colors that appear, appeal to people, you know, just of the kind of person you are. No, absolutely. We are making fashion statements. Whether we, look, people, and we judge everybody instantly by what they're wearing when you see them before you even have a chance to say, hello, you already in your mind go, mm, that's a jerk. Oh, no, look absolutely. at that idiot. But, no, I, oh. I can say the same thing, can't you, about satirizing. So satirizing these, these fashion people are, are quite often, you know, accused of taking themselves too seriously but then again you know look at the salary look at look at saturday night live and donald trump you know it's a serious business being the president of the united states every single night he's satirized and he's you know he's ribbed for for, for this and that and it's the same thing i guess with with with, with these fashion designers but what's interesting is to hear um about the about what you're talking about that facade and that kind of the, the hard work these guys put in you know it's not just every you know to most people's mind, Karl Lagerfeld, you know, was just a guy with funny black gloves on walking around, you know, looking kind of strange. But actually, you know, there's a completely different... Look at what he built. Look, yeah. I mean, yeah. all the outpouring of Lagerfeld, with Karl Lagerfeld dying is extraordinary. Yeah. Please direct the hate mail to Tom Astor <laughs> at Shaken and Stirred. <laughs> all the people who love Karl Lagerfeld. No, 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 I, no, no but you're absolutely right. No, I know you weren't, but, I, but, but he's right. I mean, this is the, the reality is the world out there most people, you know, they look at us in a bubble, people in the fashion industry, and they sort of, they, they don't fully understand. And we are in a bubble in many ways. We live in New York, and people here do take fashion a lot more seriously than they do, even if you just go sort of, you know, across the bridge. Actually, in any direction, you know, things change pretty drastically. And, you know, I, I have a house upstate New York, and, you know, I see people wearing the same outfit day in, day out, day in, day out. And I don't know whether they have a hundred of them in the cupboard or they just wear the same thing. But there is a sort of fashion statement but within still, that. There's, right. They're still saying something about those sweats and those casual clothes that they're wearing, which have now permeated the entire culture. I mean, everything's changing. They're talking about, um, you know, taking the mickey out of people. Obviously, there have been some funny movies out there around this. You know, Zoolander, Devil Wears Prada. Which are you? One, one or the other? And neither, thank God. <laughs> I was in, I was in Zoolander too, so um, I, I could pretty much say I'm Zoolander. You know, I think is that, that whole movie was very funny. What, what, what do you take? But I can tell you like a funny. Well, my Zoolander story is from a famous movie publicist whose name I won't mention. You probably know who it is. Called me about when Zoolander was coming out and said we need to use your tents to do the premiere in there because it's all about a fashion show. And they told me when it was happening, and I said, "Well, we." We have shows going on then. I can't not. I can't tell designers. We Fashion can't have comes shows, first, people. You know. So if you want, if you can do this at the end of the week, I'll tell you what it costs to keep the tents open another day, and you can do that. And it was like, oh no, no, no! You don't understand. This is a movie, and this is for Scott Rudin. And you don't tell Scott Rudin no. I said, just I, did. I don't. <laughs> you're going to have to tell him no. It's I can't do this. I, this is what the tents are built right. for. It, I'm happy to accommodate you at this time. It was such a bad scene. And I said, I'm sorry. It, the answer is no then. And then I, my, my Devil Wears Prada story is actually the same publicist who I know for many, many years called me and said, can you come on like Wednesday at 2 o'clock to a, a, a very private screening of Devil Wears Prada, and it was the whole buzz of the industry that this movie was happening. And I said, sure. And I was leaving for Europe or something the next day. I barely had time to do this, but I said, oh, you're kidding. I wouldn't miss this for a minute. And I went, and it was just me and the publicist and the publicist from the studio at the screening room. And they said the movie wasn't 
100% finished yet. Music was still being um, done. But we wanted to have the most level-headed person in fashion to see this because none of the Condé Nast books were promoting it. There was no mention of it in any of those magazines, which were also powerful mm -hmm. because it was obviously the Anna Winter Absolutely. story. So I sat down with her and we watched this movie. And I, I was like having myself. It was hysterical. It was so funny and so good and so right on. And I was terrified to see it because I thought, when I see this movie, I'm going to be embarrassed to tell people I work in the fashion industry. But there was enough redeeming moments in that movie to make it work. You know, and I have told that Cerulean Blue story long before that movie was out a hundred times to people about how things happen in the business. And I was thrilled with that movie. And then sure enough, you know, a month or so later, it was it was premiered as a breast cancer benefit. Um at a theater in New York, and Anna Winter showed up wearing Prada, and, you know, bravo to her. And the movie went on to win Academy Awards and everything. It's extraordinary. Anna Winter is obviously another fashion icon, legend, um, and someone who I think is, you know, and I say misunderstood, I don't mean by the fashion industry necessarily, but, you know, I, again, have family who don't know the fashion industry, don't know anything like your sister sort of know, knew who I was because I was on a reality television show. You know, likewise, my family looks at what I'm doing and they still ask me, so what do you do? You know, and with someone like Anna Wintour, you know, I, I remember one of my sisters saying to me, but, you know, she always looks the same and she always looks so upset and she always looks like she's angry or she's like, or that she's not looking at the show. Look at her. She's not watching. The models go foot past her and her face is just, she doesn't even move with the models. What's happening? I mean, could you shed some light to, to the world out there about, you know, what, what is going through her mind, do you think? Oh, if I could sit here and tell you what was going through Anna Winter's mind, I'd be in a Truly. completely different job. Um, I mean, I have great respect for her. She has an extraordinary job. She's, uh, talk about an enabler. I mean, she's been behind the scenes getting people in and out of jobs in all the right places. I love it. We've made a new, um, we've made a new label now. A new label. Fern is now just just called I am, I'm <laughs> Anna Winter and Enabler. I'm, yeah. See, it's, it's catching people. That's what happens yeah, in the yeah, fashion industry. I'm a industry. junior enabler to, to her enabling. Um, but, I, I mean, she knows what she's looking at. She doesn't have to – she gets it in a second. And she's probably been backstage and seen the collection already. Um, so it's important, the shows that she shows up at. Um, I think that um, she has said all through the years that she's shy. You know, she's she's not there to make new friends. She has a job to do, and she wants to see it. She wants to get in and out as fast as possible, and boy, does she ever. It's, it's, she it's, has her security, but they get in absolutely. and out before. And you, you don't even know how she manages to also, do she's that. Been there for, she's been doing in, involved for so long that it's testament anyway to the fact that she's I think what's well it, respected. Totally. An, inter an interesting, it's a sort of underlying tone that we're hearing though here is, as well is that is the insecurities of fashion and people in fashion rather. And I think I think that it's you, know, you just said that she's shy. You mentioned that some of the designers are quite insecure and that they put on a facade that you know it's. And, and I think there are a lot of elements that one of the things that I found very interesting about the fashion business myself when I first got involved, <coughs> when I first got involved, was the the, the fact that you know. The fashionistas and everyone in the business seem to be the sort of oddballs, the one, the odd ones out, the ones who might have been bullied at school, the ones who, you know, didn't fit in, and they sort of found themselves a home in the fashion industry, and they come from all over the world, all over America, small towns everywhere, and here they were, you know, in this little bubble 
uh, creating, making, and and loving life. But at the same time, when the rest of the world sort of shone a light on them, again, like you said, the, the sort of shyness, the insecurities come out, and it can often read as being full of yourself, pompous, arrogant. Um, and maybe sometimes people are, but I think that, that there is a lot of that where it's misread. I, I completely agree with that. So talking about fashion, we, 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 you know, when we look at how things have changed, you, know, you talk about Anna Winter in the front row, editors in the front row. You know, that's how it used to be. And that's certainly, you know, back in the day when I started modeling, that's what it was like. And, but things are radically different today. Yeah, who's in the front row now? Do you recognize 80% of those people? So it has morphed for anyone, who, again, who doesn't know Fashion Week. It, the editors are no longer there. The, the magazines medias, are no longer there. The magazines are no longer there. And magazines themselves, by the way, are hardly magazines anymore. Many of them, they've lost their readership. People are viewing them online. They, it's morphed what that means. Digital magazine is now the new term. And, you know, you're in my digital copy, my digital edition. We'll do a print edition once or twice a year. You know, this is becoming more familiar because people just aren't accessing that kind of content anymore. And even those sorts of words, accessing content. No one used to talk about a magazine in that fashion. Um, but that's how we do it these days. And but I'd love to have your, hear your take on do you think that the way the world is going, that it's better or it's or it's it's fine or it works? And who are these people in the front row, by the way? We still haven't Bloggers and social media sort in of influencers. Stars. Influencers. I mean, did, when I was growing up, I wish I could apply for a job as an influencer. I mean, who knew these these things existed? Um, but you are an influencer. Well, thank you. I mean, people have said that. Don't worry, you are one. But um, but nobody. But truly, you but are. I, but that not, is the definition of what an influencer is. I know. Is. If I could just figure out how to get paid every time I post something, I'd be and an I'd be much happier. Um, you know, it it has changed, and it's hard to. You know, I don't want to sound like we're living in a time when you know, cars were coming, and you're saying, "Oh, I have to give up my horse and carriage," you know, or television's coming, I have to give up the radio, or um, you know. It's progress. I mean, when that's why I started a podcast. And I mean, podcast is is the word of the day. I mean, it's all about pop. It's all about podcasts. Um, But it's it's so changed. When we started Fashion Week, I remember having there were people who would wait outside the tents to collect the photographer's film. They would have these big canvas bags, and they take all this film to labs to be you know to be processed. And then they'd come back like in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning, you'd see photographers sitting in corners and on the lawns and in the corner of the tents with contact sheets and, and um, loops, the loops and, and circling pictures and doing all that. You know, and then the end of the runways used to be thousands of the little plastic cylinders and cut that, that the your film, film went in. into, little film canisters. Mm. I mean, and all that marked up stuff. You go into a tent now or a show there's not a canister to be seen i mean everything is digital everything is sent in and out there's nobody waiting with film to but isn't that lab. part of it better or easier or quicker or especially as far as you're you're looking at something don't forget you created seventh on sixth to make things faster more the easier more economic more you know so there isn't that this is a part right, of so that. that's that's a progress that's progress. that's great now you know everybody i've watched everybody start to have phones they didn't have phones sitting in their bags phones that were cameras in any case right um at the beginning now it's like going to a concert you can't even see anything everybody's hands in the air with a with a iphone um but they're not even watching either they're not 
that's the part that kills me. You go to a show now and everybody is looking at the at the show through this three inch screen. They're not even looking up at what's going they just want to make sure they're getting the right picture. And I'm like, put that down and just enjoy the show, you know, and get it. But, a- but okay, so pay devil's advocate. I went to a show just recently in New York Fashion Week, and on either side of me, whether it said sort of Harper's Bazaar, and it had Vogue, and it had Glamour, and it had all these, edit, you know, these big magazine names. And I thought to myself, wow, this is interesting. They're going to be here at the show. I mean, that's, I haven't seen these guys in a long time at the shows. Once in a while, I see a editor. Um, and of course, when the sort of people started to finally take their seats, these sort of rather young girls sat in these seats, and I sort of looked over and I thought, "My God, I am getting older." You know, these these I, I, I'm really out of touch. These editors are, are much younger than I remember them being. Maybe they're, they're the new or whatever junior editor, and they were actually interns. And what it was was they had been sent with iPads to film the the, the the runway show and stream it live to whatever platform these magazines were running whether it's vogue or harper's or whatever and you know and they would multitask they had people at each show and i said well where is the editor and she said oh well she's at her desk she's watching all the streams of all the shows happening at once she's not doesn't want to come so you know that in a way like everyone's sort of taking advantage of this opportunity it's like the old robert altman movie pret-a-porter is coming to life or has come to life where everything is filmed and you don't, you know, the editors are in the hotel rooms. <clears throat> but it's, I mean, everything's changed, but social media has changed everything in our lives, not just the fashion industry, in everything we do. So is it better? I, I mean, I still like having a magazine. I still get newspapers. You know, I have them online, but I, and I like getting those alerts, you know, when something important happens. But I like, is that, the, what, what's like happening with those thing. magazines? What what is what is are they are the subscriptions? I mean, is everything dropping? Is is it? Oh, the, I mean, Glamour and Vanity Fair look like Time magazine. Oh, so I they're, mean, they're so small. Um, can't they're get all, the advertising. Yeah, it's all changing, and it's all it's all online. And you know, bravo to the ones that get it right online. But I mean, even Women's Wear Daily, which was a bible, you know, you get it online every day. I mean, I'm I'm getting cross-eyed trying to read articles on on a screen and even on my computer i want to take it home and print and read it on my leisure without having to look at a screen and so, that but you frustrates think, me no it's definitely frustrating but i do think it's sort of when, I, when i'm listening to you and and I, and I you know you're someone who was a maverick you, you revolutionized fashion week you went in there and you you know you got all the designers together it wasn't easy you, you pulled them all into one space and you figured all, a lot of things out you made it a lot easier for the rest of the world to sort of enjoy fashion week and for editors to enjoy fashion week and one could definitely argue that this sort of progress as we like to call it and the way the world has gone is sort of doing the same and taking it one step further why is this different why is this sort of progress different like you know being social media and influences and streaming it live and not having to attend why is this different than you taking all the shows and bringing them to one space and making it more economic because in a, in a way this is making these shows more economic these people are being able to sell their collections in real time as they're seen well i think what's different is who the audience is and who they're doing it for that's all changed because of social media and because of instagram and because of everybody everybody now is judge and jury and everybody is out there having an opinion on things and it's changing how the business is being done i mean if you're not people don't want to wait six months to see things that they see at a fashion show that people are posting pictures of i mean it's it's making people rethink the nature of the business um tommy has done a brilliant job with the you know wear now collections and doing these incredible shows um you know that doesn't work for everybody but 
it's just, you know, I don't have all the answers. It's just it's a different time and place. And if you're not online and if you're not selling on e-commerce, I mean, good luck. You know, I mean, these stores are empty. I mean, walk up Madison Avenue. I mean, every other store is for rent. I mean, where I live up on the Upper East Side, between 57th Street and 68th Street, there are like 14 stores that are empty. It's 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 a tough time in the business. That's a very tough time in the business, but it's also a change, changing aspect. I mean, look, as a photographer myself, you know, I've worked, I started with film and Polaroid, and that was my world for a decade. You know, And I remember when we all sort of moved over, and it was this, and you talked about it just a moment ago with all the canisters of film and people editing and using the little loops to look at the, the film and cross the ones that were going to be potentially the picture and you know and, and then to have to sort of slowly slowly edit your images and print make a print and you weren't really able to retouch and in the way that we can now with an app oh it's brilliant and, how it's changed i mean that's incredible i mean hey do i am i complaining that you can you know get on your phone and have a car waiting outside for you in two minutes you know that's progress it's creating traffic jams but it's progress no you absolutely know, it's, everything's changing so we, we mentioned ste- seat stealers, but this is a thing <laughs> at Fashion Week, and it's, it's, a, it's a funny kind of detour. But it's about fashion shows, and you know there are people who go to fashion shows, and there are all the fashionistas, the people who love to get dressed up from head to toe. It's a place to be seen. You only have to look at the the, the sort of lines going into fashion shows these days. It's it's not editors. It is it is these influencers. It is young, cool kids who want to say they were there. Who want to say they're there? Why don't they actually just sell tickets and be done with it? Well, on the shady side of the business, I think a lot of people are selling tickets. I think that's the unspoken part. I think you can go online and there are people who get tickets from designers or the PR firms, and there are a fair amount of seats being sold. I mean, when we found out about it, when I was at IMG or CFDA, we would put the kibosh on that in a minute because that was not the way it's set up. But people are selling tickets. No, I, well, I see. I didn't know that. I had no idea, but I, I assumed as much because of the crowds that are going in there. I was very curious as to, like, really, you're all on the invite list. Not that I'm judging them in, in a way that I said you shouldn't be, but you know, you know the people who are running the, the business, and if they're not there, then who are the people that are there? Yeah, there are an awful lot of people that you wonder who even has all these email addresses to invite these people. I mean, how do they get there? So you know, I was going to ask you, you know, what part of the fashion crowd annoys you? Would you consider these people the fashion crowd? The wannabe fashion crowd. And let's go back to seat stealing because I, it's one of the funny things for me. We people go and they wait and they there's, everyone has that you know that ticket that says they're in the front row and then they wait until the last minute or sometimes not even they just go and plonk they, themselves. They, yeah, they, and there's there's an art to doing it. The way you sit down and how you get busy and you don't look up and you don't make eye contact with anybody, you know. And so people are intimidated to say, "Excuse me." And not, um, not to mention you can't necessarily see the numbers once a few bottoms are down sitting, on seats. Yeah. And some people refuse to get up and show you that they're in the wrong seat. I mean, there's they have a lot of... They have total outrage. The PR come up and say, oh, excuse me, I think you might be sitting in this celebrity's seat. And the person's like, oh, no, absolutely not. What, are you going to make me get up? Do you not know who I am? Right. And the young PR person's like, oh, God, who is this? It might be Fern Malice. No, <laughs> God, no. Did we give her a standing seat? I'm like, who knows? Fern, where are you seated? Yeah. Now, this this week was so fun with that standing room thing. Everywhere I went, people said, do you have a good seat? Do you have a seat? You're you, you seated, right? You got your seat? People were so worried that I didn't have a seat. So you are now 
attending fashion shows and fashion weeks, not just obviously in New York Fashion Week, obviously you're not running that anymore, but you are going to Nashville, Indiana. What do these fashion weeks mean to you these days? And are they, they're kind of quaint. I've done a few of them myself. They can be really a little hectic and, you know, they remind me of the old days and sort of doing a fashion show in Milan when, you know, everything's kind of going wrong, but you kind of pull it together at the last minute. What do you love about it and, and why are you doing this? I love the genuineness of it. And I love the, um, these people really love what they're doing. And I, I believe you can be a designer and be creative anywhere. You don't have to be in New York to do that. And now with the internet and with social media, you can create collections and sell them and, and do that. And these people try so hard to do something great and get these, get their friends out and people buy tickets in all of those markets. They're all, um, that's the model where they sell tickets to produce these events. And they do such a good job and they're so genuine and, and real. And I, I just adore them all. And, and there is some interesting talent. Some of it, works its way through and you know gets its way to new york eventually if they if that's what they want and do you help that happen are you do you enable people to to... where i can yes and i i mentor them i mean i spend time usually seeing all the designers and going through their racks of clothes and you know seeing their shows and giving them my suggestions and input and asking where you know who do you see yourself hanging next to in the store where do you want to go with this business and how are you doing that and do you have a business partner? How are you financed enough? You know, you need to do this. You need to do that. And I, I, I really appreciate that. It's very different than the, that attitude in New York. You know, they're so, they're so warm and they're so embracing and they're so appreciative of my time and input. And do you see outrageous fashion in places like that? At Nashville, Indiana? Uh, some, no, it's pretty tempered. In Philly, you see some crazy stuff and, um, uh, what are, what are your words of, of wisdom to them, to those sorts of designers? I mean, to really get noticed. And why is it that New York Fashion Week and the New York colleges are putting together these sort of more outrageous shows like they do in London and places like that? Well, I think people are looking for that, that Instagrammable moment. They're looking for to get the media and get the press. And the more outrageous it is, that's what captures people's attention. But, I mean, I'm not a big fan of that. You know, I'm I try to remind these people to stay true to something to know who they're doing this for who is the customer you know and are they really servicing that person and and how do you reach that person i'm sometimes i don't know how they do it but i believe you know good fashion and good design and good talent is like you know is like are like truffles and the people sniff it out and find it you know the editors the retailers they that's it surfaces they find it and you just have to get out there you have to put yourself out there and and it's it's such a nice vision for some of these people to have a chance to be on a runway and put a collection together and have hair and makeup and accessories and get good photographs to create never know, books. Right? you never you know you never know where it comes from where it comes from or where it can lead i mean we, we you touched earlier on sort of the how influences are affecting the fashion world so heavily these days and you know, and, and obviously social media is playing a large part of that. And these people have followers, millions and millions of followers. And that's why they're asked to be there. Because obviously, if they Instagram about it, Facebook about it, tweet about it, you know, write on their blog about it, it's going to get to millions of people very much faster than a magazine that's going to write about it, or it's going to be in the newspaper tomorrow or whatever. So it's that sort of fast fashion news, so to speak. And, you know, instant access to ma- many, many people who don't know of a brand. 
that bring people there. But it, it was very interesting to me, and I think I, I got I fielded dozens of calls myself when you know Anna Wintour put um, the Kardashians and, and Kanye, well Kim Kim and, and Kanye on the cover, um, and people were like, "Is this all right? What what was your take on that?" And I know you have history with with Kanye and that whole issue, but I'm more thinking about just the, just the general idea of sort of influences really becoming uh, sort of being in vogue, if you like. Well, I mean, I can appreciate that Anna and Kanye Nast took the position that this is about the culture and this is what's happening and this is what they're formidable and you can't ignore them. Um, was I a big fan of them being on the cover? Not particularly. Um, but weren't they in vogue? I mean, that, isn't that what being in vogue is? Is that, you know, the, the, in being in vogue is when the, everyone wants you, when everyone wants a piece of you, when everyone's somehow you're the hot thing. Like, you know, and it comes out of nowhere. And it's, you know, you're a young designer that's just been discovered. And you're like, you know, wow, everyone's like, who is this person? In a way, I mean, that's what they are, or what they were, what they represent. And, and so I, I was sort of, I'm, I myself am torn between, you know, sort of getting it, understanding, not necessarily liking how or why, but totally understanding. You know that 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 that's just the way it is. You know mm -hmm. these are the people that people want to watch. Yeah, well, you know, they, it was confusing with them to the degree that I think a season or two before there was all this rumor that Anna wouldn't let Kim come to the Met Gala, and I think Kanye came without her one time or something, and that she didn't want her there. And then that all changed very quickly. Then all of a sudden she was there, and she was wearing that Givenchy printed floral number that you know head to toe and then and then you know as it evolved there they were on the cover and you know and then there's anna at all the kanye shows and um they're all pals i don't know i mean i'm not sure how that works but and I, isn't it today that kylie is like the youngest billionaire on the forbes list I, it's, it's incredible i mean the money that is being made i i just learned too that the young the old the the highest paid youtuber is in fact a sort of child who's like sort of 12 years old who made sort of tens of millions of dollars from YouTube, you know. Well, so she's made billions. billions. Billions of dollars. So that, that's what I mean. So there's an, there's an, an argument there where one can be upset and that sort of the models are being replaced by influencers that, you know, that essentially the, the models are influencers now. And, and in order to be a successful model or, or even a designer, and to you, get your point across. you can't be a successful model without having a lot of followers because nobody wants to book you unless they check out how many people follow you. So I, 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 is the suggestion then that if you have lots of followers, it doesn't necessarily equal talent. It equals you have eyeballs. eyeballs. But why are the eyeballs there? Is it because they're being outrageous? Is that the, is that the concept versus – and isn't fashion – outrageous fashion i mean that's always been a part of the show i guess i'm trying to play that devil's advocate because there's a side of me just like you i get i'm very kind of i get irritated by it and it's not the world i came from yet i you know you you sort of even on you know things like zoolander where they satirize certain aspects of the fashion industry when they send out something sort of ridiculous in inverted commas down the runway just to get attention in the newspapers or the magazines likewise you know when a model reveals really too much of them, their body or whatever on Instagram just to get likes and to get people to follow them. It's sort of the same thing in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that the jury is out completely about how those likes translate into sales. I mean, apparently it does on some stuff. I mean, like Kylie stuff all went uh, online and, the, and it just blew up. 
it's 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 interesting. I I think it's it's the wild west. You know, we're still trying to figure it all out. But you've always been someone who's reined in the wild west in fashion. Oh, not anymore. <laughs> my, so my rope's not so strong let's, enough. Let's talk about what you're doing now. You've got this incredible series. But you know, but speaking of all yes. the crazy, outrageous clothes, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, what's the name of the next show at the Met in May. It's um. I don't know the, ne- the name of the next show in the Met. I'm not quite sure. But they're always somewhat a- it's, outrageous. It, it, it's camp, camp, yeah, it's camp clothing. So it's going to be a fashion expert in our has come through with its camp clothing. Which, by the way, I've always thought it was camp clothing, but okay. But it's it's going to be camp. So it's going to be, I think, a lot of people dressed by Jeremy Scott and you know Moschino and all the loveys. Um, all the crazy. Oh, it's going to be interesting to see how people come dressed for that. And let's talk about that that particular event because that is one of those sort of wackadoodle events where everyone wants to get invited. It's the sort of hot ticket in town. Um, you know, the, it starts with everyone trying to walk up one of the largest you know, sets of stairs that you know, you've ever seen in the most incredible outfits and gowns whilst doing interviews on their way up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 that itself, that sort of obstacle course that you, that's been set up before you enter, it seems like comedy hour. That that's the way they do it. I mean, is that was it meant to be that way? Is someone actually taking a dig? <laughs> no, I you know I I mean, how else would you get into that gorgeous space and museum? I mean, that is the yes, that is the the tradition. That is the glamour and the wouldn't you prestige. create a tent and bring, well, they, put it down on the well, ground? They, well, they 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 tent the stairs, um, but you know that event has become something completely crazy. You know, it's it's a subject of a documentary and. Um, you know, it, it's become Hollywood, and it's, I mean, that's the only part of it that, for me, has changed through, over so many years. It's, it used to be a real, you know, the fashion industry and social New York, and now it's it's all Hollywood. And it's, I mean, talk about a pricey ticket. I think, I think you know, the cheapest tables are maybe, you know, $150,000, $250,000 or something. Um, so if you can afford to buy it, but it's not just afford to buy it. You Don't you have to be also approved by yes. Anna? Apparently yes. Apparently yes. Well, that's how I've, that's what I've had to. Well, I've not been, I've not gone. I've actually been on the carpet and interviewed people for E myself and almost fallen off the stairs oh. just doing that. Um, so and I actually felt bad a couple of times when you'd call out for someone and they'd come to be interviewed by you and almost topple down the stairs as they looked over their shoulder in a huge gown weighing thirty pounds. Yeah, I, I mean it's an amazing event. I haven't been in many years. I went when I was at CFDA. We used to always have a table, but um. It's not on my dance card now. Craziest outfit you've ever seen down a runway? Oh, God. I don't know that I could. There's probably been so many. I, there just becomes a blur to me after a while. Well, I know. I, I can only imagine. I, I've certainly seen. Is there something that stands out to you? Well, I can only tell you my own little story just to give it. Because I always think how funny some of the outfits that have been down the runway. But I remember when I was a model myself and I had done a campaign for a designer called Bazile. Uh, which is an Italian designer. They no longer exist, but they were actually quite big in the late 80s and early 90s. Right. And um, I had done the campaign and I'd gone, got to Milan to do this runway show and nothing fit. Mm-hmm. I am six foot four. That's true. I'm not small. And But I, but the back then models were a little bigger. This is right before heroin chic, grunge and androgyny. Right. So I was a big, you know, the, the clothes were a little bit bigger. However, nothing fit. But the designer liked me enough to say, it doesn't matter. What we're going to do, you won't wear the shoes, you'll go barefoot. You'll put the suit on, you'll tie the jacket around your waist, and you'll go down bare-chested. And I w- walked down, I opened the show with the suit tied around my waist, 
bare-chested walked out and it was the funniest thing because it was a combination of people going this is a suit designer and this is the way we're wearing our suits now what is he saying what is he suggesting but likewise he got an incredible amount of press both negative and positive um but he got press nonetheless and i, I, I for me as the young man who was wearing it i always thought it was very amusing and didn't get it either but uh well, i liked his strength it shows the flexibility of the designers and how you turn lemon lemons into lemonade right absolutely so look you've done uh, how many interviews now 43 interviews for your fashion I icon I series i think it's yeah i think it's about 43 yeah you've created a book <clears throat> and it's called fashion lives fashion lives fashion icons with fern malice and that book is the first 19 of the interviews and we're actually embarking on some conversations for a volume two which is fantastic published by rizzoli that whole series i mean you've interviewed some of the most extraordinary people in the fashion industry um i i, I obviously to ask you who was your fa favorite do you, do you interview have, do you have my book I, you know what? I do have your book, but I don't okay. have it signed. Um, oh. So we have to fix that. Okay. But some of the, the people you've interviewed, who has been the most, some, the, I guess, the, the most unusual interview for you, the most revealing interview for you? Well, a lot of them have been very revealing. I mean, more often than not, my subject will say to me, oh, my God, I'm telling you things I've never told anybody. You know, Valentino said to me, do you want me to tell you what kind of underwear I'm wearing? And I said, well, actually, yes. And then he laughed and said, no, 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 no. Um, but <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> I would have loved to have known that. <laughs> but, um, you know, the ones that, there are so many good ones. But I, I will say Bill Cunningham, um, all of our most loved, beloved photographer who passed away several years Absolutely. ago, was one of the most iconic interviews because he was really open and forthcoming. Um, uh, he came to tears several times when he was talking about his life and growing up and things that really moved him. And, uh, you know, and he he's not somebody who talks. And, you know, he never shares anything with anybody. And I think that everybody who was there for years after stopped me and said, oh, my God, I was at that Bill Cunningham interview. It was epic. Oh, my God. He was so amazing. And we have a trust with each other, and it was a warmth that – got him to feel free to um, talk about his life and the, the ups and downs of it. It was it was remarkable. Another interview that I truly loved was Leonard Lauder. You know, not a fashion person, but yes, I mean, the beauty industry is all about fashion. Absolutely. And what a remarkable man and company that he's built. You know, from his mother's kitchen sink in Queens to the, the this multi-billion dollar and how do people get the chance to li listen to your interviews? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the first 19 are pretty well transcribed in the book. The The next bunch, um, the, since the, and the book, the first book is, is Calvin and Donna and Tom Ford and Mark Jacobs and Michael Kors and Diane and Andre Lantali, Bruce Weber, Kenneth Cole, Simon Doonan, um, Polly Mellon. Um, Betsy Johnson, I'm sure I'm missing some of your Wang. Um, and the next book, whatever, will, you know, was Valentino, Victoria Beckham, Iman, and Cindy Crawford, and Leonard, the Missonis, um, Zach Posen, Alex Wang. 
I mean, it goes on and on and on. And you've got and, my and you've got my number, and so you know when, Marie, when you're really trying to wrap yeah. this book up, and and you know just <laughs> put that little just when you want to sell it to all those people who live under a rock. And Peter Marino, I'm your guy. Peter Marino, Bob Mackey, who I just did, and the next one, which is really important, people have to go on 92y.org on March 26th, which is actually my birthday. I am being interviewed um, by Bevy Smith. Fantastic. So everybody's asked me to be in the seat and twist. Turn the well. Here you are again, and we are so thankful, Fern, that you have you know come onto Shaken and Stirred, shaken it up, showed us how you shaken up the actual fashion industry itself, and you know really the fashion industry wouldn't be the same without you. Oh, that's a sweet thing. It 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 probably would be just fine, but I'm glad I was a part of it. It would not. It would be completely different, and you are a force to be reckoned with. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. (laughs) 